Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology for the arts inclined. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we're trying something new as we share our multiplayer primer. Daniel takes a look at some of the most interesting games you can play in the same room. And we take a look at Real Fear, games that discuss nightmares and trauma. But first, we talk to David S. Gallant about a fear that's on a lot of our minds, the fear of losing your job. For the third week in a row, the current theme on Built to Play is friends and enemies, ways that games can bring us closer and sometimes further apart. Now, one way to make a friend is through empathy. If you're able to see things from someone else's point of view, it's easier to get along. In the last few years, there's been a surge of games to try to make the player emphasize with a person or a point of view. Cart Life focuses on the lives of street vendors by making you attempt to balance work, money, and family. Papers, please, you puts you in the position of a customs officer, leaving you to decide who's allowed through the border and who has to go home. But the game on our mind is David Gallant's I Get This Call Every Day. It's a point-and-click conversation. It's a lightly filtered experience from what used to be my day job working at a call center. And you're basically sandwiched between um, a person who doesn't have everything together and a set of draconian rules that really expects people to sort of, I don't know, not quite be human. Back in 2013, David worked for a call center run by the Canada Revenue Agency. When you call customer service to upgrade your wireless plan, or in this case, to learn more about your taxes, you're calling one of these massive call centers. And this wasn't David's first time in working in one of these centers either. He'd worked at two others, both for Sprint. I get this call every day, takes that experience, and makes it playable. You step into David's shoes, sit at a desk, and deal with difficult callers. Well, I grew up in Vancouver. Would you have filed your first tax return while you were there? Probably. Great. Do you remember the address? 750-something. Oh, I need a full mailing address. Listen, do you remember the addresses of every place you've ever lived? It's very much a a heads-down experience. You know, you get there, you log into the phones, calls pretty much just keep coming at you. So you would, you know, get a call, you would deal with whatever that situation is, and... um, and then when the day is done, you, you log off and, and try not to internalize anything that you had that day and, and just leave work at work, go home, and get ready for the next day. Whatever. I'll just call back. No problem. Thanks for calling, sir. Have a nice day. The name is fairly literal. David had to deal with calls like this every day, maybe multiple times a day. I played the game and, well, here was my impression. The calls in the game, I mean, they are the nightmarish ones. They are the scary ones. Um, How are those in proportion to, say, the ones that are maybe average, if not pleasant? Actually, I, I, I don't think the one in the in the game is is particularly scary. That actually is the average. Um, so if 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 that comes off as a nightmare situation, I I am very sorry to tell you, there's a lot worse, a lot oh, worse, and and sometimes. They're in. They're worse in the ways that aren't fair to you as the agent, you know, where the person has come in with a lot of anger, with a lot of preconceptions about who you are, and um, and the fact that you, assuming that you will be antagonistic to their goals when you're only trying to help, um, especially working for CRA. I mean, people don't have a lot of positive views about the tax man and immediately think that you are complicit in harming them through their taxes. And sometimes you just get the nightmare situations that are caused by the bureaucracy. There was a particular call 
um, during my last month, and, and I'll, I won't divulge any confidential information here, but um, I was contacted by a person who was a caretaker for her brother, and her brother was in a vegetative state and uh, wasn't able to give anyone legal authority to deal with their affairs. She was calling to find out why a particular payment had stopped, and because she never had been given authority to speak on his behalf, I couldn't help her. I could access his file, I could see what the problem was, but by law, I could not tell her what the very simple problem was to get her situation resolved. And I believed her when she said that she was in a situation where she'd never have that authority to speak on his behalf. I, I had no reason to doubt that on the call. Um, but unfortunately, the way the rules of confidentiality and, and actually the laws in that case of confidentiality are, are written, you kind of have to assume that a person is being dishonest for the sake of protecting the integrity of, of people's information. But at the same time, I, I felt horrific having to tell this woman that I could not help. And, and like, the thing is, I could deal with the screamers. At some point, you can pass them off as just, you know, being irrationally angry and, and you can go. The, the parts of the job that made me feel less human were the ones where I felt I let people down because that's, that's what I like to do. I like to help people. And I thought that that was the point of the job. Um, and at some point, while that's the overall purpose of the job, the, the bureaucracy can often get in the way of that in an unreasonable capacity. And, uh, and that's where that that's where the idea of making oh, I get this call every day came from was to express that you know not only do you have to deal with unreasonable people sometimes, but you also get forced into unreasonable situations because of these rules that don't treat people as human beings. And yet David stuck it out. He came back every day to take more calls, not because he wanted to, but because he didn't have much of a choice. I was supporting my wife, so you know we were we both pay rent. We support three cats. And, you know, there's we don't have a vehicle, so there's, you know, public transit costs in, in getting around everywhere. You know, our finances, we weren't really doing well enough to, like, save or put away. We were sort of getting by paycheck to paycheck. You know, we had to, to make sure that we held on to whatever we could. I mean, it's kind of the only life I've ever really known after, you know, I stopped living with my parents. It just it becomes normal after a while where it's just like, OK, I've, I've managed to make sure that I've got enough for rent and bills and, and maybe enough so that we can do a little something for ourselves. Um, but it, it can get kind of scary when something unexpected comes up. We're very lucky right now to have very good coverage under my wife's medical plan. So some of that scariness is a bit alleviated. But, you know, if, uh, if there were, you know, an extended hospital stay, if my wife ever got sick and, and had to leave her job for an extended period of time, you know, we'd be uh, – we'd be – you know, pretty, uh, we wouldn't know how to deal with it and, and we might have to go, you know, looking to family. And, uh, and that's not a, that's more of a pride thing than anything else. You know, some, some of our family members are in the position to be able to help us, but you don't want to take that on. And it definitely feels like you have more debts hanging over your head when you do that. And I get this call every day. It's pretty easy to get fired. If you give confidential information, you lose. If you disrespect a caller, you lose. The only way to win is if the call ends about you getting fired. But even then, the call starts again. David said that the Canada Revenue Agency, it's actually a lot harder to get fired than it is in his game. It's a government job, and he had a union to defend him. The CRA did fire David, although from none of the ways you'll see in his game. Because they fired him for making it. At the time, I, I didn't really 
know or expect that to be possible. I, I knew I could get in trouble. I mean, there was there were specific rules um, about public servant conduct that I knew I was violating. The Toronto Star found out about the project in January. The Star is one of the most widely read papers in Canada. So when the reporter called, David answered. But maybe he shouldn't have. According to David, unless he had some kind of approval, he could not talk about his position to the press. Then there's the rule about public projects that could represent the CRA. David should have sent his game in for approval by upper management, but he said it probably would have been denied. But probably the worst outcome was the National Revenue Minister commented on the story, saying that the game was offensive. The next day, he told his boss about the game in the article in the Toronto Star. And sure enough, about an hour later, while I was on the phones, I get an email from him asking to come see him. And he says, there's going to be a meeting with you at 3.30. I recommend you find a union rep and make sure they're with you. David isn't sure that they fired him to censor him. He doesn't know what the reporter told the minister's office about the game that got the minister to respond. He is sure about one thing, though. They never played his game. When all was said and done, I, I looked at them and said, so what did you think of the game? They said, oh, well, uh, we didn't know how to open the zip file, so we didn't play it. That was the worst part for me. And I, I kind of I, I laughed inside because, like, you made this huge decision about everything that I've done and none of it was based on the actual game. You know, there's, I would love if someone at CRA played, I get this call every day and realize there are ways that they could improve lives for their agents by making changes and improve the way they deal with, with people who call them based on that game that I would love that to be the case. After all of it was over, he tweeted anyone hiring, which is when his Twitter feed went nuts. All of a sudden he got notes of support from all over the world. Developers from the Netherlands to California promoted the game. He talked to media for months. He even ended up on the radio a few times. Here's David on the WNYC show on the media. In spite of losing your job, it seems as if the gaming community and the gaming press have rallied around you. I've been supported both by the local game development community in Toronto and the wider game development community around the world, not only encouraging people to buy it to support me now that I'm out of work, but also writing articles questioning whether this was a matter of wrongful dismissal, holding the game up as an example of games as art. It's been utterly overwhelming. David eventually earned around $21,000 from I Get This Call Every Day. That's enough to pay a few months' rent and give him time to search for a job. But that was in January 2013. It's been more than a year now, and David's situation is almost back to where he started. I make maybe $100 a month off the game. Pretty much supported by my wife at this point. Her day job barely covers enough for us both. She's still dealing with student debt, and uh, and we're both paying, you know, the rent on this apartment, keeping ourselves fed, etc. It's it's not a very nice situation right now. I need a job, and finding one has been incredibly difficult. How has that relationship to that fear and tension with money changed? I don't know if it really has changed. Um, I mean, because that fear is still there. That still keeps me up at night. There's a bit more of a helplessness now because it. My ability to earn money at this point feels so far out of my hands. I, I do so much to try and get jobs, but um, you know I'm overqualified for for most minimum wage jobs, so I I don't even get calls back for that anymore, and I'm underqualified for most technical jobs. It's tough in this position to uh, 
to be looking for stuff. And I'm very lucky that my wife at least has a stable job in a work environment where she's with friends and uh, and doesn't mind going in day in, day out to, to bring home a paycheck. You've kind of ended up, through, through this game, you've kind of ended up trading one scenario that was kind of dire to another scenario that is also kind of dire. I mean, how do you feel about the situation you are now versus how you were uh, back in 2012? I think I'm a bit more comfortable with how dire this is because uh, at the very least, I don't feel trapped. When I worked for Canada Revenue Agency, I felt very, very helpless. I, I felt compelled to go in day in, uh, you know, every day and and do this job that I hated that was sort of making me both mentally and physically ill and I hated the job and I hated myself. I am at least a bit clearer of head now that I'm on my own. Um, you know, I, I have a great work environment. Um, you know, it's not the best for making games, but it is at least a comfortable space where I can walk around in my pajamas and, and not really have to worry about other people so much. So while, while the financial situation that I'm in right now is a bit more dire, I don't think I would ever go back. I wouldn't trade it. The financial security would be nice, but, uh, you know, that, that job was destroying me. And at the very least, um, being unemployed and working on games uh, doesn't destroy me. David Gallant is a writer and game designer based in Brampton, Ontario. He's a creator of I Get This Call Every Day. You can find his work on davidsgallant.com. Heads up, he's working on a Steam version, but you can buy on his website right now for $2. This next part is going to be abbreviated just for time constraints. You can hear the full primer up on our site in our new updated multiplayer hub. You can find a link in our show notes. We're talking about multiplayer madness, meaning, hey, look, local multiplayer games you can have a ton of fun with with friends in the same room. That's 100% right. Or make you hate your friends, but we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so one of the first games up on the list here that Daniel Rosen here put together in a nicely put primer here on our site is Rock Band. So... Uh, Rock Band's a pretty neat game. Rock Band's pretty cool. If you don't remember Rock Band because you've erased the last... Well, you forgot... You remember everything in the last, like, four years, but the five years before that are totally missing to you? Yeah, like, if it was so, uh, 2006... I'm on if you were early, alive, 2006, 2010, um, above the age of 14 and had a bunch of friends... Mm-hmm. That was probably like you, you definitely, definitely played a rock band. If you yeah. don't remember it, you should probably consult your doctor. Yeah. Um, it was a game. It is a game. I mean, it still exists to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You have plastic instruments and you hit the buttons to the rhythm and beat of songs. Yeah. It's the thing with rock band was always like, hey, you remember those classic songs that your parents listen to or that you're super into? Um, here's how you can, here's a great way for you to get together with. Three up to three friends, up to four by Rock Band Three. Right, up to four by Rock Band Three, and um, one plays guitar, one plays drums, one plays bass. He's the one who's not as good as guitar, <laughs> and one sings vocals, and eventually one does guitar. I played bass and guitar. Yeah, I mean, guitar was pretty sophisticated. Guitar was way too complicated. Guitar was insanely complicated. I played it because nobody else wanted to wrap their minds around that stupid thing. But the thing about Rock Band. I think we can both agree on is that it was a very unique experience and that it did kind of it did create the role play experience that you very rarely actually get in situations maybe outside of D&D. Yeah, it really does remind you of those kinds of tabletop RPG games if only because it 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 kind of tasks you with 
pretend to be a rock star. You actually have to move the guitar around to activate certain things. The game never reacts based on, like, you doing stuff, but certain showy gestures are how you activate your power-ups. Like, there's this idea of, like, no, you're supposed to be a rock star. People sold fog kits that went with this thing. Like, there, there is this concept where I think actually there's this there's a specific thing. The first footage that was ever released of Rock Band, I remember this clearly, was a bunch of journalists playing it in a room before it came out. And the excitement was like palpable because there is this sense of like everybody's just like screaming and jumping around and people are playing and you're you don't you're not actually doing anything, right? You are pretending to pretend to play a guitar. So, like the drums were a little more sophisticated in that like there was because drums can only you can like it's pretty simple an instrument to replicate. You can just actually just make them the drums. And you are singing, but it's really sometimes it's pretty hard to hear you if you have the music turned up really loud, which a lot of people did. Yeah. Um so to the point where you are you're creating this facsimile of a rock band and the game is asking you to role play a rock band and it feels cool playing it. Rock band's never been about the complexity of actually playing it or being good or bad at it. It never mattered who gets a high score on it. I always found the people who played the single player for the high score to be a little ridiculous because who cares? Yeah, I mean, it was part of, like, the joy of was, hey, did you manage to get all five stars with all your friends? Yeah. Like, the, the stars was probably the, the end of it when it came to score for, sure. at least when it comes to the multiplayer portion. And, it, and and the score doesn't even matter as long as you beat it, you know? Yeah. Or maybe you got maybe you got three stars, you really want to get four or five. Like, that. that's what does it. But it's about feeling like you're actually a band to a certain extent. It, it, it's about, you know, it's about role playing. Rock band, you know, they put a bunch of plastic instruments in their hand, and that's just to LARP. To a yeah. certain extent, you know, like all that's missing is me yelling thunderbolt, yeah, holding I mean, up a card with a four on it. It it is super strange in that, like, you got to consider that this is basically you are taking these fake instruments to play a, a, a game in which you are kind of replicating the same motions for a band. And yet you're putting all this money and this time when you could be learning an instrument. Was but that's it? the thing. That, so that was the major criticism. And that's why I think that those people don't quite understand what Rock Band is. Rock Band isn't about the act of playing music or even the act of pretending to play music. It's about the act of feeling cool. Right. It's about the act of like the same way in D&D is that you feel awesome when you destroy this fake imaginary dragon with only your words and your dice rolls. It feels awesome to be a rock star. You'll never be a rock star. You won't. You and I won't. I'm sorry to crush your dreams. And But it feels cool to be on that stage. Everybody has that image, you know, playing air guitar. Now it just gives you to play air guitar and tells you if you did it good or bad. Um, and does, unless you do it with a bunch of friends and lets you do it together without feeling ridiculous that you're just playing air guitar. I think that's part of what makes Rock Band really cool. And they're trying to bring it back. I know Harmonix is sort of – there have been rumors that Harmonix is working on a Rock Band 4. I think that game would have to be so different, though, because yeah. one, you'd have to be able to. There has to be something that you can do for the people who manage to buy like a hundred dollars worth of equipment, mm-hmm. stack it up in their homes, and um, like put that. I mean, all that stuff is in a basement somewhere for most people. Yeah, I still right? have a, I still have two guitars, a drum kit, and a drum kit, and a guitar in my closet. Yeah, and like. So they have to manage to find a way to get those compatible, those things to be compatible. Um, on top of that, music just isn't very rock focused anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's mostly pop. That's the stuff that most people know. Especially I mean, if you... it wasn't even really that much rock focused in two thousand six, but they sort of mined their back catalogs using the absolutely enormous um, DLC section. Yeah, and part of what made that stuff weird is that eventually the, you had to deal with like, the licenses between different games. So, I mean, to some extent it made sense like the Beatles got their own rock band game because, mm-hmm. and that makes sense because they have like four different musical styles. So, yeah. hey, you want a whole Beatles game? It's this exclusive experience. Now, 
to but, be fair, a lot of rock bands like that, that was just a name, right? They, yeah. they had punk. They had they never had anything hip hoppy, but hip hop doesn't usually have instrumental sections that much, mm-hmm. uh, and that wouldn't really be very exciting, I think, for a lot of people to play because even those you know those those musical sections are kind of re- are, are focused on repetition. They're about setting a beat. Um, but you could definitely handle pop. There's a lot of pop. There's a lot of Maroon Five in the DLC playlists. I mean, what they tried was with Lego Rock Band, which was way more pop focused. There yeah. were it was supposed to be for kids but i think these days like if you were to do a new rock band it would inevitably have to have something like taylor swift in it sure which i don't have a problem with no no i mean like whatever if you like her stuff you like her stuff but the Mm -hmm. um that kind of stuff is was it a a knock on me or a knock on taylor swift no no i mean it's a a knock on like there's that you know she has that whole backlash whenever Mm -hmm. you either end up with the people who are like all for her and get insulted if you don't like her Mm -hmm. or the people who are just immediately dismissive of whatever of the stuff she produces um taylor swift is the dazzler of real music exactly so when it comes to like playing those instruments and it's a very different kind of it's a very different kind of role play to want to be like taylor swift Mm -hmm. as opposed to wanting to be like van halen that's definitely true um, so you kind of have to be able to reform that game. And I don't think it'd be all that difficult, but it does require a new aesthetic and a new kind of coat of paint on that. Which I think they ha- managed with something like Dance Central, right? But right. Dance Central actually did require it to be good at dancing. Yes. Well, it extent. requires you to be at least like, you know, able coordinate. to repeat moves. Yeah. The, um, the thing that does get me about a new rock band is that I don't know if you can convince the role playing element was cool, but I, I, I do think there's a certain extent of people trying to say, you know, why it sort of fell apart, why Guitar Field fell apart was people saying, well, what's next? Right. Because it, it was basically just Rock Band 3 was really, really cool, mm-hmm. but that was basically it. It's when, not very mechanically interesting. The only way to make it more mechanically interesting is to introduce a new instrument. So I really don't know how you sell people on new plastic instruments today, but I do sort of miss that feeling. You know, I yeah. do sort of miss the feeling of packing into a basement and singing and yelling and pretending and, again, LARPing to a certain extent without the embarrassment that adds on, you know, that that is incumbent with the word LARPing. And another game that kind of another game that kind of encourages that idea of live action role play comes from Space Team, although it's a much more angry kind it's of. It's an angry, humorous role play. It takes itself less no. seriously. Space Team tasks you with uh, it gives every player a control panel on their um, iOS device or or Android device, and the you are given orders at the top of this panel. Now the orders don't necessarily just apply to your panel; they might be on other people's panel. So you're now yelling and screaming across at each other to make sure everybody hits the panel, so you escape this. Dying star, and eventually uh, get to the next level where you do it all again, but harder. And what en- what ends up happening is basically you, a bunch of friends, end up crowded around in a circle. Everyone screams out an instruction like, "Hey, swing left, unlock grooved cable!" And whoever has the grooved Frog cable, blast the vent core. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I like the one that's test hypothesis. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, because it's not on your screen, you end up kind of like trying to figure out, okay, who has this? Mm-hmm. Um, and it ends up being cooperative while also it, unintentionally cooperative in that, like, everyone's working towards their own end, but the the end happens to be uh, the same one that everyone is yeah. going for at the same time. Uh, and even though it has split screens, unlike a lot of portable games that ask you to be playing a split screen multiplayer, it forces interaction, it foists interaction upon you because you have to yell at each other or you'll never accomplish anything because you don't have your own orders. It's It's... Why that game is such a good icebreaker at parties? Because mm-hmm. by the time you're done, it's I feel I feel like Space Team is better with 
people you don't know than people you do know. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard for you to be angry at random people yeah. that you've just met. It's like, oh, I don't know him. Yeah. Like, but when it's one of your friends, you're like, that guy, he screwed up. I know you're better than that. I know you could. If you really wanted to, you could have hit that slider and avoided the pus that spewed from the screen after a while. I've never had that happen to me. I think you may have bad Space Team experiences, and we might need to talk about that. <laughs> Though I did have a friend tell me they were scared of me after you played Space Team. <laughs> they didn't know I could be that loud. Now, this last game I don't actually know much about. It's uh, Hidden in Plain Sight. So uh, it's kind of in, it's spy party influenced. So yes. Th- so what, give us a description. So uh, Hidden in Plain Sight is, I called it the Mario Party of Spy Party. Uh, spy Party is a game in which one person is a sniper, one person is a spy. The spy has to uh, make their way around the dinner party and assassinate their target. The dinner party is full of CPUs, and the spy has to figure out who is the real human among the CPUs. Hidden in Plain Sight takes that and has basically six mini-games based around that idea of hiding among CPUs. Uh, one of them is a game, is just a that same game. It's all in 2D instead of 3D. Uh, they use sprites. One of them is just that game. It's actually the least exciting game of the other thing. I think it's called Assassin. All right. One of the cooler games, though, is something, say, like Ninja Party. Ninja Party has a big field of just dozens of ninjas, I think a hundred ninjas. Every player, up to four players, are one ninja among this. You don't know who you are, nobody else knows who you are. Your goal is either to kill all the other ninjas or to touch the five statues around the room. There's a sound every time a player, not a CPU, touches a statue. So now you have this thing of like you're watching all the statues, you're watching the whole screen to see which CPU is build is, is you know which CPU isn't a CPU. It's this reverse Turing test thing of seeing whether a whether a CPU can fool a human, whether a human can pretend to be a CPU hard enough, right? That they can you know it, it, instead of a hu- instead of a computer pretending to be human, it's a human pretending to be a computer. It's really fascinating. There's also this game called Death Race where um, it puts at about you know like seventy five something like that CPUs again four pla- uh, two players. Or sorry, no. Four players are mixed into the um, to the CPUs. There is a finish line at the end of the screen. If you if you um, you can tap to walk, or you can kind of run in a direction. If you start running, though, you might reveal yourself as the person. You also have a gun with one bullet with a cursor. You aim with the uh, the right stick. If you if you think you have found the person who is a human, you can point your cursor at them and shoot them. You can you don't know if you got it right or wrong unless that person throws their controller down in despair. But they can keep tricking you into thinking that there's another human out there and they have to slow their roll to kind of protect another two people there. Or they can pretend they got killed and secretly be manipulating their controller under the table or something. There's a lot of really cool things that Spy Party asks you to do with a shared screen while still hiding who you are from other players. Um, I think there's six games total. There's some other cool ones. Those are my two particular favorites, though. So when it comes down to this, this is kind of like a game about pretending to be a computer yeah it's that is i mean and it kind of what you're describing is also kind of like whenever you play those games of halo or whatever where it's like hey man stop looking at my screen and Mm -hmm. like this is this is kind of encouraging that what you'd usually think of as cheating encouraging like watching every part of the screen as intently as humanly possible yeah because you need to figure out who is who um, and it's not tense at all. It's really fun and funny. It's chaotic. It's kind of wild. The designer of um, of Hidden Plain Sight likens it because he says he's definitely inspired by Spy Party. But Spy Party is chess, and um, Hidden Plain Sight is Hungry Hungry Hippos. <laughs> like this is a game about kind of these quick five minute matches, doing something wild, trying out a crazy strategy, going back in, doing it. You know, doing the game again. Uh, it really lends itself well as a party game. It's really entertaining, and the the the. The the thing it does to you, basically, is that it kind of just lets you 
try to fool your friends, which is interesting because you don't see that often in competitive games. It's not usually about being smarter than your opponent. It's often being about better than them in a less kind of, I don't know, abstract way. Street Fighter, yeah, you're smarter than them, but you also un- you outpredicted them, you played mind games with them, but you also maybe have been, maybe were better at inputting your combos. You know, if you're playing competitive Guitar Hero somehow, you, all you were was better at pressing the buttons. Competitive Call of Duty, you were you snuck up on them, you shot them, you killed them more times. It's not necessarily that you're smarter than them, unless it's like a 61 deficit or something. This is nothing but being cleverer than your friends, and that's really cool. Well, that's fascinating. I'm actually uh, feel like checking this out. What platform is this? This is for? on uh, Steam and XBLA. XBLA. It's also have indie games. It's like a buck, I think. Okay. All right. Cool. That's... Downloaded. It's fantastic. So far, when we talk about friends and enemies, we've mostly been talking about the former. But for this next segment, we're going to do a deep dive into not just an enemy, but a monster. Specifically, the uncle who works at Nintendo. If you went to grade school in the 90s, there was always one kid who knew a suspicious amount about video games. He or she would have the best games, knew which ones were coming out, and maybe had that shiny ride-on you were looking for. How? It's obvious, the kid would say. My uncle works at Nintendo. We all seem to have, when I say we, I mean, I guess, you know, people of a certain age, um, people who play video games specifically of a certain age, had that one friend who seemed to compulsively lie about uh, the sort of contents of the game, some secrets that they would have. And they would do this either seemingly unknowingly or um, I've talked to people um, in the wake of the game who said, yeah, no, I totally had a friend who did this. And he did it like, you know, consciously, like he did it specifically to screw with me um but for whatever reason it seems like that uh games and easter eggs and secrets uh breed this kind of uh i don't know way of thinking about them you know there's always something that you're not getting always something potentially hidden that's michael lutz a designer based in indiana who recently made a horror game called the uncle who works in nintendo it's a choose-your-own-adventure story made in Twine about a child who sleeps over at their friend's house. The player's friend has a bunch of rare Nintendo equipment, an odd-looking Game Boy, and a Pokemon that doesn't function like the rest, all from an uncle who works at Nintendo. And then at midnight, the uncle arrives. Heads up, from here on in, there will be spoilers. It's, you know, as many things are in childhood, it's just, it's kind of incredibly petty. Um... And I was thinking about how that sort of petty desire to just kind of, if not, you know, maybe trick your friend to kind of make your friend think that you're cooler than you are um, or, you know, you have better access to to games or sort of some sort of exclusive access to them. Um, It seemed like a very good uh, metaphor by which to kind of examine the ways in which... um, I mean, I guess really the ways in which we're always uh, on the verge of turning against our friends, especially at that age, because friendships uh, when you're young can be so fickle. Um, but then I was also interested in using this as kind of a, a lens to start looking forward from uh, that point in the past, which is, you know, this sort of nebulous late 90s period um, to the kind of rising uh 
um, and more sort of vociferous divisions we're seeing in gaming culture largely now um, with all the stuff that's going on with uh, Anita Sarkeesian and reactions uh, against her um, and that whole mess. Michael started work on the game in August before a lot of the harassment against women started up online. But then, by the end of the month, the campaigns began. Trolls sent out death threats to women, hacked into the accounts of anyone they deemed was against them, and stole a lot of personal information. Designer Brianna Wu was scared out of her home. Meanwhile, YouTuber and critic Anita Sarkeesian received a note threatening to cause a massacre. All of that changed how Michael approached the game. I, you know, could not, for one thing, release this game and try to be sort of, like, vague and coy about it because it was going to be very, very obvious, right? Like, the current events were starting to speak to what I was writing in a way that I just had not expected at all. Um, and it had started very much kind of as a um, a more... I mean, it's, it's still a very personal project, but it was even more personal when it began because it was largely inspired by um, my own childhood and kind of my... Uh, anxieties, um, my social anxiety around my peers, um, you know, my class anxieties. I was from a working class family. I didn't have many games, uh, didn't have many consoles and things like that. Um, and then as Gamergate sort of uh, started revving into gear, I realized that um, the, the kinds of anxieties that were working on me back then and that I was trying to talk about now were in fact connected to this larger structure of um, you know, a sort of consumerist hobby that on the one hand wants to say, you know, everyone is a gamer and everyone can buy a game and play a game. And then the apparent uh, way in which this hobby itself has turned people against one another, that something has happened in um, the past 15 or 20 years uh, to make at least one large uh, portion of this uh, sort of I don't know, demographic think that, you know, women shouldn't be allowed to make 20 minute YouTube videos criticizing the representation of like women in various games. So I started I sort of had to like step back and think, you know, what what would be the politics of reception uh, if I were to release this game? Um, and what are the sorts of things that I want people to know? Um, and so one of the things I was very clear or I decided that I want to be very clear on um, was I wanted people to know that I was against this sort of harassment. I, I could not afford to be kind of um, vague in what this game sort of symbolized or what it was trying to thematize. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why the author's notes ended up coming in at the end of the game um, that unlock after you get the the secret ending. Um, because... You know, if for whatever reason the game itself did not end up being kind of explicit enough in laying out like here is this problem that I see and I see it starting, you know, 15 years ago when we were kids. Um, if if that were somehow not explicit enough, I wanted to uh, have a kind of um, repository of notes I was taking for myself, for my own clarification and edification that people could look at and see like, okay, here's kind of how he was thinking through this, through this problem. Here's how he was reacting to it. So when I first conceived of this game, the game would have ended basically um, with, and, you know, more spoilers, uh, with one of the other endings, which is where you take the... Um, the Game Boy and then go home and then basically find out that the uncle 
uh, who works for Nintendo, has now sort of latched onto you, that it's kind of this weird uh, vampiric entity that needs a host, and you're its next uh, victim, essentially. Um, that's basically how that probably would have ended. Uh, had Gamergate not happened, it would seem horribly unethical of me to make something that was speaking so openly and so directly to something that was happening for real right now that people were receiving uh you know murder threats over and people were being driven out of their homes for it i needed to have a part of the game at least where i was able to say there is life beyond this my response to to the claim that it is naive would be like well it's you know not me trying to say that like here's how we solve um the problem of division and abuse in gaming it's more about you know here's how we can take comfort in the fact that we can have friends that we can you know survive beyond whatever's happening to us right now that something you know is in the future and it's not being eaten alive by this horrible faceless monster that works at nintendo I just found it interesting that you decided to go with a version where people can help each other as opposed to the one where it may be more representative of the crazy harassment that was going on at the time. I just had to, you know, say that, uh, okay, so we do this, right? We, we abuse each other. We say horrible things to each other. But somewhere out there in this big mess of us, there have to be at least two people who can be happy. <laughs> I hope like hell there are. Um, and this is one of the reasons uh, in one of the notes I quote uh, G.K. Chesterton, or rather I sort of judiciously paraphrase him, where he says something like, you know, the, the point of fairy tales is not that they tell us that dragons exist, because of course dragons exist. We know that very, very well. Um, what fairy tales do is that they allow us to kind of imagine that we can beat dragons. But there's another part to the uncle who works at Nintendo, beyond the harassment. When you're a kid, you notice things during sleepovers, like your friend's 60-inch flat-screen TV, which your parents said was too expensive. Or there's cultural differences, like the food or decorations, especially if one of you isn't white. For Michael, it was his parents. They weren't happy together, and because of his anxiety, he rarely wanted to have friends over. I have pretty pretty strong social anxiety, and so very, very rarely did I ever have friends over to my house because I would just have these like horrible thoughts of like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? Um, are my parents going to get into a fight? Is my sister going to be absolutely terrible? The social anxiety part was really exacerbated, um, I think, by living in a house with these two with these two people who are kind of, you know, they're they're the authority figures, they're the adults, but they don't really like each other. Um, and so there was a lot of, you know, sort of fighting and bickering and just it was a very weird environment. And I knew there was something not quite right about it. And I didn't want people to come over and see that happening in case, I don't know, name whatever, you know, horrific disaster a child could imagine. And then added to that was and I did not, of course, have the vocabulary to sort of um, parse it out this way at the time was kind of a class anxiety that we were working class. We didn't have, um, you know, a whole lot of room in our house. Um, I didn't have as much uh, in the way of like games and stuff to do as some of my friends would. But yeah, no, I definitely had all sorts of like sleepover anxiety when i was a kid all right before we end i have to admit something i totally did this as a kid i said i had an uncle who works in nintendo and i destroyed a friend's nintendo 64 in saying it i was the the one i was a compulsive liar as a mm -hmm. kid but also i was the kid who 
usually knew stuff. And that was why I was a compulsive liar. As a result, uh, when I didn't know something or when I thought I knew something, I would either make something up to back me up mm-hmm. or I would just like pull it out of my butt entirely. So for some reason, their Smash Brothers cartridge kept deleting characters. Like just they'd, they'd unlock everything and then they'd come two weeks later and everything would be gone. So my, my thing is clearly the memory unit. And they're like, no, nah, it can't be that. And then I said, well, my uncle works at Nintendo. And my uncle actually worked in server repair. So I figured that's got to be the same thing. <laughs> close enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my last question is, am I a monster? I mean, I think the thing about monsters um, is... Uh, they're they're very they're very free form, um, and the fact of the th- the point that I would make about monsters, uh, well, the first one is kind of the the normal like intro to cultural studies point maybe, which is that the word monster um, from the Latin monstrum means show, right? To show or to indicate. Um, so monsters always show things. They point to something else. Monsters are never just about being a monster. Monsters are always about something else. So the uncle who works for Nintendo is not just about, like, uncles working for Nintendo. It's about, you know, what we've talked about here today, the the divisions, the rivalries, the sort of petty squabbles um, that games seem, if not to, you know, directly cause, to exacerbate in some way. Um, and then the second point that I would make about monsters monsters are not a thing or that any particular thing or person always is it's kind of a, a a thing that you participate in and you can step out of or that people can in some instances force you to participate in and you can do your best to get yourself out of um so i would say like we all have to be monsters sometimes somewhere a little bit like it's it's a fact of life i think but that doesn't mean that we're damned <laughs> Michael Lutz is a game designer and grad student studying English. You can find him online at correlatedcontents.com. So I'm not the biggest fan of trigger warnings, but if there was a time to put them in, this is the segment. While we don't dive into significant details, we will acknowledge abuse, severe mental health issues, and suicide. If you have any kids in the room, maybe don't let them listen to this next part. This Halloween season gave us plenty to be afraid of. Sure, there were ghouls on the street on the 31st of October, but even before that, some of the news was outright horrifying. It was two weeks ago today that Corporal Nathan Cirilla was shot and killed at the National War Memorial in Ottawa. This week, his girlfriend, Andrea Pollock, wrote about him on social media and called upon Canadians to look at the state of our mental health care system. Hashtag Gamergate wherein a small rabble is using a trumped-up scandal as cover for a full-on attack on female game makers and game critics. The Toronto Star has published allegations from a number of women, quoted anonymously, alleging they were attacked without consent. We have now reached a woman who claims she was also attacked by Mr. Gomeshi. Part of what makes this scary is that we have a hard time talking about these issues. More than that, these experiences are hard to communicate. You don't know how others will respond or if you'll become marked. There is one place where we do a better job of describing mental health, harassment, and abuse. Horror fiction. As anyone who's watched a horror movie knows, it's not a perfect genre. You'll often see stories about the virginal girl who survives a murderous psychopath. But amidst cliches, Caitlin Tremblay sees horror as a way to reach out. Fear and horror gives us a common language to be able to even talk about these things. I mean, especially for... um, 
from my experience, talking about like any form of abuse is a really scary thing. So talking about it in metaphors or in parallels makes it easier. So liking, so for me to talk about abuse, to liken it to a story that we all knew and understood, almost kind of, it felt like it was giving us all a common language. So they could, they could look at the fear rather than look at me being a woman saying this is what happened to me. It kind of felt like a way to bypass the stigma and the way that people usually treat women who talk out about this, these kinds of things. So... Caitlin Trombley, longtime horror fan, is the editor of the horror twine anthology Lights Out, Please. Earlier this year, she joined a week-long game jam to make interactive fiction without using JavaScript. A jam is like a contest. At the start, you're given a theme or a restriction, and you have a short amount of time to make the best game you can. In this case, the theme was text-only, making experience without using sound, animation, or images. And that's where I originally got the idea of retelling old horror stories or urban legends to kind of talk about things that I was coming to terms with in my own life or talk about things that I didn't really know how else to say. Um, And so after I had done the first two stories, I had considered making it into a larger anthology, but it just wasn't working and it felt like it was really missing something. And I realized it's because I'm a white girl, so I can only say the same things over and over again, right? And it really felt like for it to be what what I thought it should be, it couldn't just be my story anymore and it needed to be an anthology of other people's stories because it's it's a collection about how the fear we're told about in these urban legends is a daily fear for many people and so for that to actually come across it it needed to be different people's stories like it couldn't just be mine because I know I don't experience the same kind of oppression and fear that other people do on different levels and so that's kind of when the idea to make it a collaborative anthology was born and then as soon as I as soon as I got the idea it just made so much sense and it just kind of took off from there. Uh, John how did you end up submitting your story to the anthology? Um, Well I've been friends with Caitlin for a little while and um, I had seen her and some of our mutual friends putting out twines And when she put out the call, I had been working on a few short horror stories at the time because uh, I work as a writer, freelance games journalist on the side. But I kind of wanted to do something in Twine, and I had discussed it with her previously. And so I felt like this was the right time to jump in because she foolishly offered to do all the coding. (laughs) Foolishly is the operative word. (laughs) Capable, and I was not capable. So I decided to jump in. So the other fellow in the room is John Rathagonthan, better known as John R. He did a lot of the programming in Lights Out, Please, and contributed a story inspired by his insomnia. Although he does have one additional inspiration. I am an insomniac. I have been since I was 10, so I'm used to being awake late at night um, when it feels like nobody else in the world's awake. It's kind of strange to contemplate being awake and no one's moving for miles. But I have lived in the country, and I have lived in the city, and parts of this city go completely dead as soon as midnight hits, which is kind of alarming for a lot of people who live downtown, but it's real, and it's really creepy to know that in, like, four hours, people will cover the streets, but after that, not nothing. But the story that I wrote was based on my friend buying a farmhouse near Sudbury and finding a diary really similar to the one I mean, it didn't end with missing pages, but it did It did basically have the person kind of descend. Uh, it turned out it was from a sanitarium. I don't know where, but it was basically one of the original inhabitants had left it. I guess she had gotten better or was declared better. 
Could you give us like a sample of what you remember from it? It was late 1800s, and she had just written about lunch with her mother, and then she started detailing um, something that had happened to her in her youth. But it was basically it basically sounded like she saw her brother kill somebody, and then later they told her that's not what happened. But in her diary, she like quite strongly suggests that yes, no, that's exactly what happened. And they had been hiding it. And that's why they basically threw her in her sanitarium. Which is horrifying. Yeah. It is deeply horrifying. And the thing is, is that they were basically... Like, you could tell they had torn pages out of it, too. So they found it, but left it mostly intact. But there's no name, so I can't track it down like and verify. So it makes it more scary. Mental health in the 19th century is probably more horrifying than any of us could possibly imagine down to it. No, I'm pretty well studied on it. It's more horrifying than you know, and it gets worse the further you dive. Which is why we wanted to avoid it in these stories, because... Did it actually, did your story end up going towards that? No. Okay. Um, I, I cleaned it out to make sure that the idea of, like, the character having a descent was important, because that happens to everybody under isolation. Right. That's another uh, fact that people don't realize, but ISO in prisons is actually basically a form of mental torture because as soon as you're isolated away from people and you minimize the amount of sound repetition you can't measure how long something takes so your brain starts playing tricks on you because it doesn't have enough input our whole existence is basically predicated on regular intervals of stuff in which your brain uses to measure the progress of time which is why sensory deprivation tanks work at all because you know you're in a tank but you end up experiencing weird things as a result Caitlin has her own story, too, though hers, like many of the pieces, might be hard to identify. For you, I mean, none of your stories actually end up in the game, as far as I'm aware. Why didn't you drop any of your own? I did write and put one in there, but it's under a pseudonym. Okay. It's a very real story that I've had a really hard time coming to over the past couple of years. And I think people who know me well can trace my pseudonym and some connections in the story to figure it out um but yeah but it was something i felt more comfortable having under a pseudonym is it something that you've had trouble kind of resolving with yourself oh absolutely and a part so much of it is that a lot of we don't have the right language to really talk about abuse and certain things and so a lot of it is just even accepting that what happened was Abuse. When it comes to specifically abuse, uh, what is the fear there? A lot, especially with men, they don't have that kind of experience. What is the fear of talking about it? Oh, people don't believe you. You're acting for attention. You're being too sensitive. Blah, 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 blah. Something, something. I mean, there is the comment of there's the jilted ex-girlfriend, that kind of thing. Yeah, I've been trying to avoid saying he sh- he who shall not be named <laughs> for this whole time. But, th- but that's exactly it. A society does not treat people who speak out with the benefit of the doubt they treat them as all necessarily having an ulterior motive and it's really discouraging for anybody to speak out and i i think even just speaking is a is a major fear for a lot of people perhaps one of the most frightening things about these games are their lack of agency you can choose between options but they rarely change the scenario it all leads to a feeling of helplessness does interactivity then change the way, the interactivity and agency then change the way we relate to these stories? I think it's interactivity based off 
interactive fiction versus interactivity, say, with, like, a Silent Hill game. I think with interactivity in a Silent Hill game, the fear is more of, like, tension. It's it's not necessarily... It's it's not a one-to-one fear of what the player character is feeling and what you're feeling. It's tension and failure. Yeah. It's the fear of failure, more likely. Mm-hmm. Whereas with interactive fiction, when, when it's only text-based, you're kind of forced more into the mind frame of it. So there, there's no visuals. There's no There's nothing there to really distract you from other than what is being said. And so I feel like it it offers a different element of almost closer or more intimacy, I guess. Now, as you as you kind of mentioned with with these twines, there is kind of a limit to the amount of agency you guys get. Is is the fact that there is no escape then that this is kind of there is no back button, there is I mean, if you in your browser maybe, but the um there's no real back button. You have to kind you're forced to kind of go through this thing. It's definitely supposed to be uncomfortable. It's it's supposed. Some of them were supposed to make you feel a little claustrophobic. You're supposed to feel trapped in it. Like it, it's not. It's supposed to be a safe place for the writers to tell their stories, but in no means is it an enjoyable experience. I mean, I always to toot my own horn. Then good horror is never enjoyable. <laughs> purely, I agree. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned is that this is there. This is not. You guys don't have the cinematic elements. This is literally just text. There's no pictures, really. What What is the appeal in just having that simplicity? That's how we tell old scary stories all the time. There's something great about just telling a story and letting your imagination run wild with the details. It's why I will always forever love old black and white horror because they didn't have the effects to make really cool monsters. Um, and it's really when you take the idea that you're reading and then kind of flesh it out in your head that you get a lot you make it your own in a way so like it's like interactivity of thinking almost well for my story the way because i had written just um for players who haven't or for people listening who haven't played my section of the game it's the basement and uh, a character is trapped in the basement and basically that is what happens to them um but i realized after writing just that section it didn't work um, because how do you get a twine to revolve around that? So I created the, t- the opening where somebody is in the house uh, that the story takes place in, and they find a diary, and the diary is what retells the story to them. So you get the feeling of somebody having experienced this or finding the book and then telling you that story. It's kind of like you're having a friend tell the story to you, and it drags you into it. Like when your friends tell you a story and you can't help but react to the same things they'd react to. It's kind of the same thing of, are you afraid of the dark, where everyone gathered around a campfire. It's the exact same mechanic, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of how I was explaining it to people, too. It's like, tell the story as if you're sitting around the campfire with a friend. And um, Lights Out was actually shown at the Dames Making Games Spook 8 this past Friday um, for Halloween. And they had set it up with wood benches and a flashlight and in a really dark room, so it kind of emulated the feeling of, you know, are you afraid of the dark? And... My original um, press copy had um, readers beware you're in for a scare, but I decided to not quote Goosebumps. I know John's shaking his head at me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'd like to thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Caitlin Tromboy is the editor and creator of Lights Out Please, a horror anthology. You can find her at thatmonster.wordpress.com. John R. is a writer, programmer, and contributor to Lights Out, Please. You can find him at phonicus.tumblr.com. If you're interested, Lights Out, Please is available for pay what you want on Caitlin's website.
That's all for this week. I'm producer Dominic Bolling. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to play with made with the help of David S. Gallant, Michael Lutz, Caitlin Tremblay, and John Rathaganton. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more we can find the show. We're usually on the air to Scope Horizon at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. We've started up our newest theme, all about playing games with other people. We have a primer up on the site, plus a story about Beverly Love, an angry diatribe about chess. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bill2Play. And me personally at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rose, and then I'll always be your amiibo. Thanks so much for listening. Was the name a reference to an old uh, radio horror show? It is. It's a reference to Lights Out, please. <laughs> no, just right, Lights Out. Yeah. Um, I love old school horror radio shows and I used to do a lot of traveling um, just between cities in Ontario so I spent a lot of time listening to old radio podcasts and just fell in love with um, Lights Out because it started off with this creepy guy at the beginning like Lights Out please oh please don't do that <laughs> please use that